Hey, it's me, Chance, and you're about to listen to our discussion with clinical psychologist, Dr. John Arden, author of the 2003 book, America's Meltdown, Lowest Common Denominator Society. I'm working on doing one episode per chapter from this book, where we compare and contrast what Dr. Arden wrote in 2003 with today. This week, we'll be talking about chapter two, cyberspace. Next week, we'll be discussing the toxicity of conspiracy theories and how they're detrimental when it comes to discussing important social and political issues. We'll be talking with Mikey Biddlestone, a grad student from the School of Psychology at the University of Kent in the UK. Biddlestone is in his final year pursuing his PhD and has published research on the psychology of conspiracy theories. Following that, we'll be speaking with Dr. Christopher Wright from the University of Sydney Business School in Australia and the author of Climate Change, Capitalism, and Corporations, Processes of Creative Self-Destruction. Included in that chat will also be Dr. Lori Adkin of the Department of Political Science and Environmental Studies at the University of Alberta in Canada, who has authored several books on climate change and capitalism, such as Regime of Obstruction, How Corporate Power Blocks Energy Democracy. We'll be speaking with both authors on the subject of how free market capitalism gets in the way of addressing global climate change. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and listen to us at iTunes, SoundCloud, YouTube, and eventually on Spotify. If you want to show your appreciation for our work, all that we ask is that you do so by rating and reviewing us on iTunes and on Spotify. Finally, check us out at punk-journalism.com. Was this the first book that you wrote, by the way, or published? Uh, uh, no, I think it was the third or fourth. Okay. I'm up to 15, but I'm working on a couple more right now. Okay. Uh, and it was the actually the only real political book. The other books that I've been writing are more about neuroscience, right? And complexity and and you know uh, PTSD and anxiety. You know, I'm a psychologist, uh, and uh, what's the mind and, and that sort of thing. So I would say that that book was really the only sort of political like book. Yeah. The rest of your book's more academic, right? Uh, not necessarily. Uh, I have a, a bunch of these self-help type books, you know, like okay. what to do about anxiety, OCD, PTSD, uh, rewire your brain. Uh, or I even have a dummies book, you know, really? <laughs> yeah. Called improving your memory for dummies. Okay. Yeah. Right. And, uh, you know, uh, it's kind of interesting. I, did, I wrote that right after the America's meltdown and my agent at the time said, would you want to write this? And I, I said, geez, I, we're, we're experiencing the dumbification of, of uh, the country. And then my wife said, well, do you want to help people or not? And I said, sure, of course. She said, then write that book. <laughs> and I learned a lot about how to bring things down to earth. And, um, and so I, I really feel uh, that, um, uh, you know, if you can explain complex things in a down-to-earth way, it's not dumbification. It's it's actually just appealing to a larger group right, of, yeah. uh, of people. And actually, where I'm going next week is Lisbon to do a TED Talk. And what <laughs> the talk is only 18 minutes. It's almost like a dummy's book, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, it, but I hope to communicate some complex ideas in a down-to-earth way so i don't regard that as a meltdown no absolutely not well in fact what there's the uh, quote by einstein i'm just going to paraphrase it that's something along the lines of like a real expert is able to communicate his ideas to a broad audience instead of overwhelming them with jargon and 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 complex ideas and language right 
Are you familiar exactly. with that? Exactly. Yeah. You know, in fact, many people even say that uh, to take that uh, uh, one step further, if you can't do that, uh, then you really don't understand mm-hmm. the material. Yeah, right. Yeah. And uh, and I think that there's a, a there are quite a few examples of, of people like that that we we run into. And and that was actually something I was a, a TA in grad school and I taught a technical writing class. And that was something that I kind of would drive to the students is, you know, everything that you're going to be talking about is is going to be related to what your your career interests are but don't don't try to talk over anybody's head like you know the real challenge is trying to talk to a lay audience to get them understand what is specific to your career field so, right right yeah. exactly so that's a very interesting uh, pivot uh not pivot point but difference from uh, the lowest common denominator concept which is uh Forget the complex ideas that are communicated in a down-to-earth way. No, let's just not even have any kind of mm-hmm. uh, high-level thought right. here yeah. at all. Yeah. Let's just gravitate to our dumb thought, mm-hmm. so to speak. Well, and that's why I think our last president appealed to such a broad audience, unfortunately, you know, and uh, because he did appeal to the lowest common denominator, and the lowest common denominator is a pretty broad demographic, so... Yeah, um, right. He 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 helped cultivate even a lower common denominator. As I think we he did. Talked about. Yeah, <laughs> I think so. I think you're right. Uh, so, hey, Ricky, are you settled? Yeah, I'm settled. Okay, go ahead. I know that you wanted to uh, to kick off the first question there. So, well, so John, um, my first question was kind of the gist of this whole thing. Uh, Looking over your book, and uh, I've I've got the I've read the first couple of chapters, but uh, it seems well. You can tell it was written in the two thousand two thousand three. Uh, you start talking a lot about how virtual reality is uh, going to be taking over, and it's just now getting its feet underneath it. Actually, VR is up here. We are twenty twenty one, but um, I'm just curious how your views or have your views changed at all since you wrote this. Oh yeah, you know I I uh, I would say specific uh, to technology, right? Oh yeah. yeah, specific to this second chapter. Sorry, the oh, cyberspace right. one. Right, and and you know, forgive me because I don't quite uh, remember everything I wrote in that chapter because oh, okay. twenty years ago. But uh, let let me just say that um, um, uh, with regard to virtual reality, there are many practical applications to virtual reality in, in my world, you know, in the mental health uh, psychology world, uh, especially with regard to helping people with PTSD and, and all that. And I had some friends that were working in that particular area. And, and certainly the VA system have, has been attempting to, to do that. So uh, virtual reality in general as a, as a tool I think can be quite useful and, and on entertainment level, uh, you know, you, Ricky, you're probably far more aware of uh, the entertainment value of virtual reality and uh, all that. Uh, so if it's virtual reality that you're um, thinking about, uh, I'm, I'm only uh more aware of its uh, application in the mental health and healthcare world. Uh, uh, regarding the um, uh, entertainment value, uh, there might be even an inter, inter, uh, uh, 
a connection between the two. If, if you don't mind me uh, uh, blabbing on about something that one of my sons is into now. No, go Are you familiar with uh, fax coding at all? Fax coding? Uh, how are you pronouncing? Oh, it's, uh, it's actually a, it, it's a, called facial action, facial, meaning your face, action mm -hmm. coding system. And it's based on uh, okay. how a person's face looks different, uh, you know, can express emotion. And, and a lot of the research is, is uh, was originally done by uh, Paul Ekman at University of California, San Francisco. And then there's this whole system, people developing AI uh, applications. And uh, oh, yeah. One of my sons is, is uh, had done some fax coding as a research assistant. Now he's going to be doing it again. Uh, and the application of AI is really fascinating as well. So one of my friends here in Santa Fe, uh, who also was a, uh, a faculty member at the Santa Fe Institute. I don't, I don't know if you guys know what the Santa Fe Institute is. Mm, no. Do you know that? Uh-uh. Oh, okay. It's... it's uh, let me just back up a second and uh, just describe it. Yeah, um, it's the uh, one of the centers of what is called complexity theory, and it was founded by three Nobel laureates, two physicists and an, and an economist. Uh, and then since then, all these major uh, uh, people, major researchers, have uh, flown in, done some time, you know, uh, visiting faculty member and all that. And uh, so you have this incredible collaboration between physicists, uh, biologists, uh, computer scientists, uh, even archaeologists, uh, occasionally a, a psychologist, more uh, on the cognitive uh, level. And a friend of mine uh, who is very involved there, and she, uh, her research is on AI. Uh, she just retired from Portland State University, uh, just wrote a book on artificial intelligence that you're probably familiar with um, called Artificial Intelligence. Um, and uh, so anyway, I think that the if I were to write that book again, um, and this sec I think it's the second chapter that's on cyberspace, so to speak, um, that the application of not only virtual reality, but really AI uh, is really uh, quite fascinating. Although if you read Melanie's book and she's really on the uh, cusp of, uh, you know, what's happening in that world, uh, uh, we're pretty far from uh, any attempt to replicate consciousness. In fact, one of her research uh, uh, interests is how to create a, uh, an AI uh, um, a learning system that can understand and appreciate the concept of metaphor. I mean, right now, yeah. metaphor is just, uh, it's a lot of nuance. Yeah. Very, very nuanced. And, and if you, if you interview her at some point, you'll, you'll find that she said, well, we're, we're, we don't even have uh, common sense down in the AI systems. However, that all being said, um, uh, I'm not a believer that AI is going to replicate consciousness. However, there are a lot of really pr incredible practical applications that might be an inner uh, um, sort of a, a linkage between all these different domains that uh, we just talked about. You know, the fax coding uh, that's uh, being uh, utilized in many airports right now to catch bad guys, you know, and all that. Um, uh, 
and uh, AI and also healthcare. Uh, and then you uh, factor in maybe virtual reality that can be a learning process, you know, machine learning and, and so on. So mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of uh, uh, growth in that whole area. Now, on the other hand, because we're talking about the lowest common denominator and everything else, people spend an inordinate amount of time divorced from their regular life and they're lost in cyberspace. <laughs> uh, and so uh, there have been some studies that have built, been built on uh, many of the early studies that I think I might have been quoting way back then, 20 years ago, that people that spend more time on the computer and less time in their natural life get more depressed. Right, yeah. So, um, and uh, have uh, less uh, depth in their, their actual relationships. And so a person that I would encourage you to maybe interview that uh, knows a whole lot about this subject is uh, an MIT psychologist by the name of Sherry Turkle. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, you did mention her in in the book. Yeah. 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 She she has gone on to, uh, you know, do a whole number of other books, a number of uh, other studies, you know, certainly since way back, uh, what was that, 2003. Uh, So... Um, and so she's quite critical of the time spent and the, um, uh, the lack of uh, depth and the illusion of connectivity that we have. Now, well, the- so that's a question that I've got for you with that illusion of cure connectivity in that. Um, I don't know. Would you have considered pen pals back in the day false friends or not real friends? Oh, yeah. And, and, you know, Ricky, I think it's really good that you're raising this question because it's not an either or. It's not like you uh, it's bad to do or good to do. Or if you if you do it, no, you don't have really good friends. Let's face it. We're talking on the Internet right now. Uh, And if we were to send letters back and forth and and all that, we wouldn't have any kind of depth, uh, you know, maybe to some degree. And it would take a whole lot of time. So I think it's a degree. It's really a, a question of what degree of uh, connectivity, what degree of depth and everything else. Uh, right. rather than, I, I would uh, argue that that anymore, uh, that that was a very valid uh, point back in, back 20 years ago when this was written. Uh, I would argue that now, uh, with my experience and with, with others' experiences, um, online friendships can be equally deep and equally engaging as real life friendships, as as physical in person friendships. Uh, you know, I uh, let me let me uh, first say that uh, there's no question. I totally agree with you that there's there's so much more depth than there ever was before, without a doubt. I mean, I just spent a little time. Uh, uh, this is my second sort of Zoom like call, but this isn't Zoom, but uh, with a yeah, uh, close enough, yeah, close enough, you know, same concept. Zoom is like Kleenex anymore, you could say Kleenex, and <laughs> as long as you're getting tissues, you're happy, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, I, I do agree with you that you know, I had a very nice, touching, uh, good conversation with a, a very close friend of mine in Spain, uh, a, a couple hours good. ago, and we're having a, a engaging conversation right now. So uh, what I wrote back in 2003, uh, as you just said, doesn't really hang true uh, in the in this in a big way. Uh, do I sure. think, on the other hand, do I think that 
uh, physical proximity offers more? Yes, I do. Uh, I, I don't think it's a, uh, the online connectivity, though infinitely better, without a doubt, uh, uh, can never, uh, especially in, let's say, in, even intimate relationships, uh, and I don't mean it has to be sexual or anything like that, uh, but you know, just spending the nuances of time that's not sort of compressed in, let's say, a brief conversation, but you're, you're walking along and spending more time with one another and all that, and, and sharing the same vision you know, as you're walking around, mm -hmm. just more depth uh, that that is available to you. Uh, so again, it's not an either or. And uh, you know, at some point, I wonder. And 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 uh, Ricky, you're the tech guy here. I would imagine um, that at some point we might even have conversations with people, not necessarily virtual reality, but almost holographic conversations. You call them on the yeah. So, yeah not a telephone, but whatever the heck we're, we're going to call it. Uh, and they're in the room with you, but they're a holographic yeah. image. Uh, call it a stereo tank if you've ever read any uh, Stranger in a Strange Land. Oh, boy, yeah, that's a that's a book from, what, 1971 or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, I love that book. Yeah, but, right, uh, exactly. And so, yeah, I, I would say that if, that's even a step beyond where we are right now, of course. I mean, you're, you're seeing them in three-dimensional form, uh, and uh, there's more, uh, at least visual tech, uh, tactile. Of course, you're not touching mm -hmm. them. Uh, but uh, so I, I kind of think of it as degrees of uh, connectivity as opposed to, oh, there's no connectivity with uh, virtual uh, uh, contact. Um, okay. So, yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah, I would agree that, 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 you know, I, I like doing these podcasts with Chance and with Chris. And uh, I would rather go and have everybody, you know, out to a coffee shop and we all have some coffee. We sit and we talk over a table. Yeah, right. But, exactly. um, but this is what we've got, you know, because Chris is uh, over in wherever the hell Chris lives. I think it's like Kansas, Kansas City, or something. Right. Yeah. Right. And Chance and I are both in Colorado and Chance is trying to Chance is trying to leave me and go to like Germany or some exotic place like that. I just found out today that that fell through, so I guess that's not happening. Oh, so I guess you, no, you're stuck with me a little bit longer. Yep. <laughs> um, well, where, by the way, where are you guys in Colorado? We're in northern Colorado, northern Colorado. about an, an hour north of Denver, outside of Fort Collins. Outside of Fort Collins. Yeah. You know, last week, I drove through Rocky Mountain National Park. Yeah, that's really then, close to uh, us. We're in a, I'm sorry? gorgeous isn't it oh it's absolutely incredible yeah I, I love that place i'm really uh frightened by the massive uh spruce uh tree death mm -hmm. uh that is uh, yeah it's just it goes all the way up to montana and we have some down here in the sangrita crystals but on a positive side beautiful area yeah. and then we rented a cabin uh uh in a kind of a populated place but it was called grand lake yeah you know where that is mm -hmm. uh, uh -huh. did, did hike up in the mountains and everything so yeah i love uh i love the mountains up there so yeah. yeah no it's all right this it time off, off topic this time last year that whole area was on fire for about two months i know so. i know i saw uh, just uh, hundreds of square miles of uh, maybe i'm exaggerating no dead trees. no it was it was going on for until trees, october yeah well, and 
stay tuned for, we're going to have a discussion in a couple of weeks with uh, two different academics. Both have written on the subject of how free market capitalism gets in the way of addressing climate change. So so that's ah, kind of, yeah, I think oh, that'll kind of tie Yeah, in. I'd like to hear that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, certainly it is the case. Sure. Yeah. So yeah, for sure. related to what you, you guys were speaking about as far as virtual reality and video games go, I personally, like, I'm not a, I'm not a gamer. Um, when I was younger, I played video games a lot, but it's just not really my thing. Um, I know that that's a, a really big part of a lot of people's lives, especially now. Ricky, Chris, they both dabble in that i personally have have had pretty strong feelings over the years about how i think that it it is problematic in certain ways as far as creating antisocial behavior and that sort of thing but when i think about it like i'm also pretty antisocial not like in the sociopathic way just i i'm kind of like a loner in your book you mentioned about social isolation and video games you say Quote, there are psychological consequences for children who excessively use computers. The most obvious consequence is social, social isolation. Because of that isolation, children have less experience with the natural world. End quote. And so I agree that there's a fine line between using technology as a tool and for entertainment and knowing when to put it down, put the tablet down, the phone or whatever. For me, I struggle, I struggle with that myself. Like in, in sort of the observation that I've made with especially the portable devices, phones, uh, tablets, whatever, is that it used to be that you would have gaps of, of free time, whether that's like you're sitting in a waiting room at the doctor's office or whatever, and you would be forced to kind of cure that boredom with either you know having a thoughtful sort of inner monologue um, contemplating something or reading a book or a magazine or that sort of thing. But anytime now we have those even few seconds of downtime, we can really quick, like compulsively without even thinking about it, we take out the phone and we, we fill in those gaps with the phone and Facebook. Or yeah. Instagram. Yeah. And I think, I think that I, I have a feeling that that's what contributes to that depression. And I think that the ultimate goal of smart devices is really just the, the elimination of inconvenience, but there isn't any proof that collectively we're any happier, more satisfied, today than we were 40 years ago but with that being said i don't know if we should throw the baby out with the bathwater. as far as the youth are concerned prior to the 90s it seemed like a lot of these same kind of people were considered the nerds who were building computers and experimenting with tech rather than playing football or baseball um, they were also you know playing dungeons and dragons reading comic books and now that that tech is more widespread and available i just think that these sorts of people have more options for creative outlets a lot of these kind of people go into STEM fields, developing really life-altering innovations. I think it's just a matter of receiving the stimuli in heavy doses when the stimuli is so readily available in a semi seemingly endless supply online and trying to find that healthy balance. And I think that that's really where the trick is, isn't it? Yeah, well put. Uh, I, I totally agree with just uh, everything that you said. And and uh, let me just uh, touch on a couple points. Um, uh, from a psychological point of view, uh, having uh, those little gaps of time, you say you're sitting in a waiting room instead of pulling out a phone, you yeah. might, you know, sit there and reflect on something, pick up a magazine, talk to the person next to you instead of filling every space of time with looking at one of these devices. 
And um, uh, there have been some studies, I, I can't quote the, the actual ones, but uh, uh, that have demonstrated that, that um, at least with children, let's say, you know, through adolescence, uh, the ability to, to deal with quiet time uh, to deal with spaces and, and let's say even uh, uh, a pause in a conversation uh, is part of psychological development. Mm -hmm. And if we're cramming in um, uh, every space and time with some kind of, you know, whether it be Facebook or, you know, WhatsApp or, or whatever the heck we're uh, communicating on or checking our email or text or whatever, then uh, uh, it almost drives anxiety when you do have that, those little gaps of time yeah, right. that hopefully you could fill up with uh, um, degrees of, uh, let's say, insight, uh, for example. Uh, if you don't mind me just rattling on a few things about the so-called mind, sure. uh, which, which isn't just one thing, but rather uh, uh, states of mind. So... Um, uh, in fact, this is what I'm going to be talking about at, at this TED Talk next week, uh, that um, uh, thanks to the uh, marriage of both psychology and neuroscience, we've been better able to take a look at uh, uh, various states of mind that are very strongly associated with particular networks in the brain. And uh, there are three that kind of stand out a little bit. Doesn't mean that these are the only uh, networks in the brain that generate these states of mind. Uh, but it, um, they, uh, they include the salience network, this, this uh, general sense of your material me, also um, uh, the generation of emotion, a lot of really fascinating research on what is emotion, how does it emerge and all that. Mm -hmm. um, and <clears throat> I mean, even your gut bacteria has has an effect on your emotional oh, state, sure. right. your generation of uh, neurochemicals and so on. And then your default mode network is another one that's been highlighted, especially since the early 2000s. Uh, uh, and you've since I've been rattling on, both of you have probably been there a couple of times. You know, and we have a tendency 30 percent uh, of our waking hours is spent in our default mode network, you know, reflecting on. Uh, you know, thinking creatively or not necessarily creatively and ruminating, worrying, hey, you know, you might, one of you might be going, hey, John's rattling on a little bit too long. I mean, maybe I better ask him a different question or, <laughs> or whatever. So we use that in part uh, to also get a sense of what another person is thinking. So we have this idea of theory of mind. So, you know, I'm communicating the two of you. I'm kind of trying to understand, oh, okay, where do, where do these guys want to go with this conversation and so on. So I use that reflective uh, area of my mind, uh, mind meaning one of the states. And then I have an executive network. Executive network is a much harder one to uh, uh, keep going. Uh, last to mature in the brain, uh, strongly related to what we refer to as a dorsal outer prefrontal cortex. It uh, mm -hmm. uh, matures uh, roughly in the mid-20s. <clears throat> and it's that area of our so-called mind, the executive network, that seems to have atrophied in the American public. Uh, so the lowest common denominator has been uh, cultivated even lower uh, by all these uh, uh, idiots out there that Trump cultivated, 
uh, and you well know that you know Trump could start with one topic in the first part of his sentence, terrible grammar, and jump to three or four different topics that aren't even related. But people weren't bothered by that because the general public uh, can't track anyway. And so the executive network uh, is the one that's easiest to atrophy. Now, mm-hmm. with all that in mind, so to speak, meaning those states of mind, back to the uh, 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 issue at hand, you know, and that is the cyberspace uh, related issue. Well, if we're clicking around a whole lot and we don't really read as much, for example, uh, you know, I, I read, uh, oh, New York Times, Washington Post, and a few other uh, kind of online news uh, uh, venues. Uh, but, you know, I'm less inclined to read the whole article because I'm looking on the screen mm. and it hurts my eyes. And so I'm more inclined to scan articles. And um, uh, so I'm wondering if the depth and the cultivation of my executive network in terms of uh, examining the news is somewhat diminished over it was uh, some time ago. And if I can add in one more thing and then I'll uh, shut up. No, you're good. (laughs) Um, You know, um, (laughs) I, you know, I, I spend hours every day uh, reading and writing, hours, literally. Uh, and, uh, you know, because I'm working on these various books and everything. And uh, I have found that, you know, and now I'm 70 years old. I have found that my ability to, uh, to generate my executive network capacity, meaning roughly 20 to 30 seconds, if I can keep uh, the next 20 to 30 seconds related to the previous 30, uh, 20 to 30 seconds, then I'm doing well. Uh, but uh, people my age and older uh, start to lose cells. Now, it's the easiest area to lose in terms of its capacity. And uh, so you don't have to be 70. You could be 26 and not really develop it very well because of the lowest common denominator society that we have been cultivating uh, for some time. Interesting. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and I, I guess where I always come back to those gaps in time that you, I like the word that you use is atrophying is I wonder how much creativity we're missing out on because people aren't, aren't using that free time um, to, force themselves into a, a position of creativity of maybe stumbling upon a creative idea that they wouldn't have otherwise. So right. yeah, yeah, I that's, agree. yeah. I agree. And I, something that I've observed over the years of, of having a smartphone um, and social media and that sort of thing is time just seems to go by a lot faster. And I, I don't know if that's related to me just being in my thirties now, late thirties and you know, things are, just uh less stimulating than they used to be but it seemed like i would tell you that's part of it yeah i just but i really do feel like when i look at the time of when that started happening when it seemed like time like the day just started to get away from me it was right around the time that i i would i started getting on social media and had an an iphone and and that sort of thing and it's yeah and i do think it's just kind of speeds up the day because you're filling in all those all those gaps you know yeah, yeah. and, and you know, and, and the other thing that we might touch on, and I'm sure the two of you have talked uh, uh, quite a lot about, is uh, 
during the last year and a half, the, the COVID pandemic that's international uh, right now, and it won't go away. In fact, we'll have many more pandemics with climate change, people bunched together and so on. Um, but we're so much more oriented towards what we're doing right now. We're conversing over you know, this Google chat uh, thing and Skype and FaceTime and all this. And uh, the world has, uh, our acceleration towards this media use and its, um, let's say, advances, which I, I think is going to improve it, like we talked about uh, later, uh, has dramatically changed the texture of international society. I mean, it is so incredible. Just, just as a, I like to uh, remember, a conversation I had prior to flying back into the country when everything was shutting down. I got the last Qantas flight back to the United States uh, in April of 2020. And my friend and I were walking on the southern coast of uh, Australia. And she's very, very involved in this international organization monitoring refugee movement and trauma and all this. And she said, you know, this is so much bigger than a 9-11. This is like... Uh, a colossal world event that's not going to uh, subside. Uh, and so we're adaptive creatures, we humans, and we're uh, going to continue to, to expand upon this cyberspace area without a doubt, uh, only by necessity, really. Uh, and we're going to make better use of it if we cannot get lost too much in it. So uh, remember, we were talking about balance here. Is it good or is it bad? Heck no. I mean, it, you know, it's, it's in between. It depends on how much you use. Just like watching TV or Netflix or whatever. Drinking beer. Your whole life yeah. there. Then you, you lose your life, so right. to speak. But on the other hand, uh, you know, is it a nice thing to watch a movie? Sure. Yeah, that's nice. And so it's really about balance here. Uh, but that all being said, we are... Uh, going to be needing this venue so much more than we thought we would. Uh, and if I could just add one more thing, uh, my other son who works at Microsoft right now, and he was a, a staffer on Capitol Hill with Pelosi and Feinstein and other people uh, and involved in developing their social media, by the way, before he moved on to Microsoft, uh, spends all day long on all these uh I don't, they have a different um, Microsoft rooms or whatever it's called. Okay. Teams. Uh, teams, right. Yeah, he's on Teams all the time. I mean, he spends, and, and by the way, they haven't even been into their office, which is like a university campus, and they're like two miles from it in Redmond, uh, Seattle area. Uh, and so uh, this world of uh, whatever you want to call it, the cyber world, uh, has, along with COVID is our adaptation. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. And so uh, uh, we've got to use it. I mean, I, I shouldn't say we've got to use it, but I mean, if you want to have these kinds of conversations, uh, if you want to take university classes, I mean, many classes are on online, but I do a, uh, a, uh, a, a seminar almost every 10 days, six hours about all, you know, brain and mental health and all that. I got one on Friday for six hours with people all over the world. And so it's a good thing. Uh, I used to do it on site, but now we're doing it on Zoom or whatever. Uh, 
so um, it's just a, a, a question of how much uh, and um, it, to what degree yeah. are you using these um, um advances in technology and i've i've thought this last year year and a half with everything going on it would be it would have been interesting to have seen how this would have affected the world in the 80s or 90s or even the early 2000s before this technology was available for people to communicate in a in a way that we are able to now online and i i don't i feel like that would have been pretty detrimental all those years ago not being able to to communicate at long distances as we are able to now, like how would universities function? How would a lot of workplaces function, you know? Yeah, I've been waiting, waiting for this to happen. I mean, for years, I've been waiting for companies to real, for, for this kind of thing to happen and for companies to realize they're spending way too much money you don't have to have like uh, I, I work for a, a very large uh, satellite imaging company right now, uh, monitoring all of their uh, all, all all their we call it the factory, all their image processing stuff, all that kind of thing. I, I do a lot of that kind of monitoring, and so I have a very on-demand job, John. So if there, nothing really goes wrong, I have a really slow night. But ninety uh, percent of our workforce is working from home currently. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I think and, that that's been a, a silver lining to all this. Campuses here in in Colorado, and we don't uh, we don't have them filled past like twenty five percent either mm-hmm. one of them. Yeah, we don't need both of those campuses. If we wanted to save money, if the if I could tell my bosses one thing, hey, you guys want to make a lot of money, get rid of one of the, get rid of the the big shiny facility in uh in westminster that we've got it's oh is it the, is that the one that looks like a big satellite dish yeah yeah the one that looks like it's got a big satellite dish. okay yeah all right yeah we're that's uh, millions of dollars in rent for it we don't need it we don't use it that's that's so uh uh amazing and so true i mean i was mentioning my my son uh, who worked for microsoft haven't been in the office yet <laughs> you know, and miles from yeah. it. And his wife is at, at Expedia and the Expedia guy that, you know, run uh, owns it, uh, built this big building like you're just describing in Westminster. Uh, and he's saying, I want you people to be, I didn't build this for nothing. <laughs> you know? and, yeah, right. And it's a I lot of space. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and times so are changing in the future. I think we're just going to be seeing far more people, less commute time, far more working from home. And it's just, as we're describing, uh, COVID just accelerated what was going to be happening anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and personally, like I I uh, was starting to say a little bit ago, like if there's been a silver lining to, to all of this, I think that that's been it, is that employers have seen that they don't have to have people on site. You don't need to be breathing down their necks. You don't need to be keeping tabs on them. In fact, I think, you can be even more productive um, in, in, in the comfort of your own surroundings and your own home. And I, what I think would be really cool to see is if uh, the government would give some sort of tax credit to businesses who have their, their employees working at home to cut down on, on traffic and, and, and pollution and that sort of thing. 
Yeah, uh, yeah, that's really interesting. I wonder if uh, there is in the infrastructure bill that sort of stalled out for a couple reasons, uh, some tax credit uh, for that uh, companies that aren't requiring uh, the, the commute, uh, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, right. Yeah. So, so we're, what we're talking about is rather interesting because the overall concept is, you know, America's meltdown and everything else. But we're also talking about silver linings, as uh, you used the term uh, chance a minute ago. And, and uh, Ricky, you were talking about I've been waiting for this to happen and all that. So there are some good things happening. It's, the question is how we do it. Uh, and to what degree? Now, the America's meltdown uh, aspect, the more negative aspect, is uh, information has become so compartmentalized that you have a lot of extremely, extremely limited, cognitively limited people out there uh, spurting off all this misinformation. I mean, you know, a horse uh, oh, dewormer yeah, right. is now being used for COVID. Mm -hmm. I mean, come on. Yeah. And, you know, it's spotted out by not just Fox News and, and all these dummy outlets, but also uh, various websites and, and so on, or these anti-vax people. And, and they're the ones creating all the mutations sure. right now. Because the, the higher number of uh, unvaccinated people out there, the more chance for, uh, you know, not just the Delta, Delta Plus and Mu and, and the many more uh, uh, mutations. So uh, uh, technology uh, is just a tool. It's how you use it. And because it's become so compartmentalized, we've had such a split in uh, even politics. Like mm -hmm. you have a massive degree of, I just saw a poll out that a good half of Republicans out there still think that the election was stolen. Sure. I mean, yeah. how moronic can you get? Yeah. I mean, really, how stupid. So, uh, yeah. And that's because we, we have these compartmentalized venues out there. You know, I'm, I'm a lot older than you, you guys. And, you know, before you could trust, <laughs> you know, the Walter Cronkite get on the news, you know, uh, uh, you could generally trust what was being communicated. Uh, and I, and I say generally, because of, of course there was a lot of filters and everything else, but, uh, on the other hand, nowadays you can get the total opposite of the truth out there and people believing it like mm -hmm. the QAnon idiots mm -hmm. out there. Right. Uh, and so what has happened? Well, technology, you don't want to blame it on technology because, you know, the car, the phone, you know, we have all these different developments over the last, uh, you know, 100 years or so. Uh, it's just how you use it. Sure. Yeah. And, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, no, no, that's fine. That's fine. Sure. Yeah. I was so we may have met, talked about this the last time we spoke, but I know that if there is something that I could personally cite as far as what has come out of social media that's been absolutely detrimental is just the overabundance of news and information that comes at you from every single angle, whether you want it to or not, like you can't even get away from it. And yeah, and I, I certainly think I know that this leads to things like conspiracy theories, which is another topic we're going to discuss with somebody here in a couple of weeks is the toxicity of conspiracy theories and how they get spread around so prevalently, just disinformation in general. Um, and I, I, there's no doubt that that's what has led to so much of the, of the, uh, the 
contention um, the last several months or, you know, after Trump's uh, exit from from the White House, you know, with the what occurred on January 6th, like that, that all is is just spun up on social media and and people it's it's so easy to find information that reinforces your 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 uh, pre-existing perspectives and you know you can avoid the cognitive dissonance and so yeah that's that's definitely uh i would i would say a in the negative column as far as what's come out of social media is you know in the last 15 or 20 years yeah and and just to quote uh, him uh, which was actually a quote of another uh very despicable person uh, there's a, a very famous line, and that is, uh, te- uh, tell the big lie, tell it over and over again, and sooner or later they will believe you. Well, that's a, a direct quote from Trump, but he was actually quoting Hitler. That's a very uh, clear and distinct uh, propaganda uh, tool that was used in the 1930s. Uh, and many people quoted Hitler and, and Himmler and other people mm-hmm. um, using that. And so what what is... Uh, Trump done made a lot, millions of dollars to pay off some of his, uh, uh, you know, loans and everything, playing that up, you know, elections, blah, blah, blah. But that's what can happen in this echo chamber of these little compartments. You can keep rolling this stuff about pizza gates or right, some yeah. craziness, you know, about the Democrats are eating your children right. or something. It, yeah. It's so uh, toxic. And, and uh, you keep saying it over and over again. And then somebody like Trump, not to just, you know, put our finger on him, he's just exploiting a, a, a tendency um, is when you say people are saying, you notice how mm-hmm. he used to say that all the time? Yeah. Well, he's the one that was saying it. And then if you say people are saying, you don't have to say who said it. it wasn't related to a study. It was people are saying. And then other people say people are saying too. I heard people are saying too. And it just becomes this crazy echo chamber that uh, from a psychological point of view gets a little morphed. Every time you say something like that, somebody adds to it to make it more mm-hmm. fantastic. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Right. Well, and we know that that's that's what sells. You know, if it bleeds, it leads. As far as cyberspace, as you put it, is concerned, you know, since we're on the topic of social media, social media has definitely become a dominating force in our lives. You know, whether we want to or not, it's it's definitely a a, a huge influence on just about everybody's life. And you don't make very much mention of of foreseeing anything like social media um, in that chapter. And there really was, I, I honestly don't think that there really was any reason to believe or to think that something like social media in the, as we know it now was on the horizon. Um, was this something that you foresaw at the time? Um, uh, no, I, and I certainly don't pretend to be so uh, visionary yeah. <laughs> at all uh, to, to um, speculate on that. Uh, you know, even though I was speculating on holographic, uh, you know, uh, phone, not phone, but, you know, these kinds of calls and everything else. Uh, I'm just, uh, you know, a consumer of information out there, but not uh, uh, necessarily an astute one. So, no, I I didn't, uh, uh, other than these um, uh, chat rooms and Mm -hmm. and all that, that was, uh, uh, they were around in the late 90s uh, and, you know, they still are there, of course, but I mean, things have morphed uh, 
so far uh, since. Uh, but um, uh, I, I do have a couple concerns about social media that relates to children mm-hmm. uh, that uh, we might want to touch on. Yeah, and sure. I, I'm really concerned about cyberbullying. Oh, yeah. And, and uh, I, I think that um, h- here again is the social media used in a pretty uh, despicable way uh, that has resulted in some suicides. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, the sort of ridicule that, and then somebody gets their picture taken, for example, mm-hmm. right, uh, in a compromised way, and then posted out there somehow, um, and uh, then just can't live it down, and and everything else, uh, you know. So we we could say that um, it's a it's a tool that um, it's almost like a weapon, <laughs> you know, from a pistol to a nuclear bomb. I mean, you could. Uh, have so much greater destructive effect uh, uh, with social media than you can just whispering in somebody's ear because you can reach so many more people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and once you post something, it's hard to kill it anyway. So, uh, uh, so there's some really goods, uh, good things happening and then some really potentially destructive things. And I'm, I'm uh, concerned about the, the, uh, uh, destructive as well as heartened by the potential for the the good yeah so to speak. right now i've i've heard you know countless horror stories of children that have experienced cyberbullying, and i experienced bullying as an adolescent i'm just so thankful that social media wasn't around when i was a kid because i that would have definitely been some, a whole nother level of something to handle so uh, yeah. yeah there's another section of that chapter netted in depression um and I agree with what you say where 100% of your, or you, you cite Robert Kraut, who found that greater use of the internet leads to sh- uh, shrinking social contract and support, increased loneliness and depression, and an increased feelings of unhappiness. Speaking personally, I've observed that I think that the most unhappy people I know, and this is anecdotal, of course, including myself, are the people that are most frequently on social media. And they're the same people that make the biggest public proclamations that they're taking a break from social media or deleting it all together, but are back in less than a week. And I, I just, I wonder if in your field, how, if, if this is just too new still of a, of an area that people aren't being treated for their overuse of social media, um, or is that where's that factoring into your diagnosis? Oh, actually, it, it's a big discussion point uh, in the American Psychological Association, and and I've done a few webinars with uh, 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 different um, um, uh, conferences, uh, mm-hmm. Eastern Europe and Australia and others, and and uh, one on addiction. We spent a, a fair amount of time on internet addiction and, and actually what areas of the brain get uh, co-opted uh, when you're addicted. And, and uh, you were describing Kraut uh, uh, and those studies. And I, I mentioned Sherry Turkle and some other people. And there's a nice book called Glow Kids uh, that kind of summarizes some of this. And that's a more recent book. Uh, and uh, so you also said that, well, uh, these people that kind of go on a social media fast and all of a sudden they're right back mm-hmm. to it again. Right. In, in part is related to this. Uh, it's easy to fall back into it. 
Yeah, it's uh, so available. And you can see, uh, in fact, there's been some interesting studies with uh, uh, at Stanford and others, um, just hearing a, a ding uh, from your uh, iPhone or your your uh, Android or whatever, mm-hmm. when a text comes in, there's a release of dopamine mm-hmm. <laughs> that sure. hits your ventral, to, uh, rather hits your uh, nucleus incumbens, which is like grand central station for, for pleasure. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in other words, these devices are incredibly addictive and, and they're easy to fall back into more than you could even say more than, uh, let's say, uh, heroin or, or Vicodin or, Oxycontin or something like that, because you have to go out and get them. Yeah, these well, are so much I mean, more accessible. You got the computer right there yeah, in the house. Right. Uh, and it's easy to get kind of sucked in there. And so, um, and then, you know, one minute leads to three hours later, you go, wow, what did I do? Mm-hmm. Uh, so to speak. Uh, and it takes a whole lot more, if you don't mind me, just keep throwing in these neuroscience yeah, sure. kind of terms, but the executive network, which is a, a lot to do with your prefrontal cortex, a lot to do with, you know, your ability to navigate yourself through the world without falling back into repetitive patterns, uh, uh, just kind of goes uh, blank uh, to some degree. So in other words, uh, even your clicking, you know, you follow one lead, then you're clicked to another lit link and another link and pre- you don't even follow, you don't even read the entire thing. Uh, so it's easy to become addicted mm-hmm. and yeah. um, addicted to what? Well, I don't know, you know, it could be anything. It could be gaming, could be, you know, chatting about uh, whatever on any one of these social media platforms. Uh, so, um, there is some dark uh, uh, areas related to cyber uh, addiction uh, that uh, people like myself and, and uh, certainly people that uh, center their um, uh, practice on addiction, on uh, Internet addiction out there. So there's a just to bring it back to video games, too, for a moment, you uh also discuss violent video games and you cite that as being problematic. And so you make a statement that a significant number of teenage assassins like the Columbine shooters um, and others who terrorize their schools have been obsessed with playing violent video games. And that may be true, but does correlation equal causation? Because there are a lot of references to how violent video games are, are training for real life violence in that chapter, just as a a flight simulator might be training for a pilot. And that these games are just, you know, blur the distinction between reality and and fantasy. But years later, there doesn't seem to be a lot of strong evidence to support the correlation between these shooters and video games. Is that right? You know, I I think your your point and and, uh, well uh, repeated by many people, and that is correlation doesn't uh, equal uh, causation. That's true. Uh, But let's just uh, talk in general. And uh, we get back to um, uh, the, the video game idea. But the more you uh, are exposed to something, the more numb to the novelty of that exposure. Uh, in other words, the more violent movies you see, let's just talk about movies, uh, the less uh, uh, disturbing it is. I, I'll give you an example. I, you guys are kind of young, but there was a, a movie by uh, Tarantino, Quentin Tarantino, mm-hmm. called Pulp Fiction. Fiction. Yeah. Remember that? Yep. Pulp Fiction. Yeah, I got it. 
Yeah. And so we were, my wife and I were in uh, Durango, uh, Colorado once. We, we, uh, we used to spend a lot of time there. We flew out from San Francisco where we were living at the time. And then uh, we thought, hey, let's go to the movies. So we went to the movies and there, what, what was available in Durango, small town. Okay, Pulp Fiction, what is that? Well, okay. We're sitting down and literally uh, both of us were getting disturbed by uh, uh, you know, the incredible gratuitous violence. Of course, Tarantino's really into that anyway. But Sam Peckinpah was really into that even before that. Uh, and so she got up and said, I, I can't stand this. I'm going to go. And I said, look, well, you know, we're, just sit through it a little bit more, see where it's going. Maybe it's going to mellow out. But it continued, but we got numb. Now, that's a little microcosm of 90 minutes or 120 minutes or whatever. But the more you experience... Uh, let's just say violence, the less disturbing it becomes. So I'm a guy that's uh, spent a heck of a lot of time overseas. So I was spending uh, time in the Middle East. And, and in fact, uh, you know, some of the people that were have been escaping uh, Kabul have some of the people were some of the people I was teaching stress tolerance. And um, these are F, uh, uh, government service workers and all that. So I spent a lot of time with people uh, that have experienced trauma, uh, Syrian refugees and other people. And uh, in fact, my own family experienced terrible violence during a genocide. I, I'm an Armenian. And so uh, the, there's this really odd and to some degree disturbing adaptation that we all experience. I mean, we're incredibly adaptive creatures, uh, but the, the, uh, more you're exposed to something, the more uh, you become somewhat numb to it, but at the same time disturbed by it in a different memory system uh, called the implicit memory system, uh, as opposed to the explicit, meaning you're conscious of what it is. So that all being said, I kind of rattled around a little bit to come back to violent video games. Uh, and uh, yes, correlation doesn't uh, equal causation. Uh, but to some degree, you're less disturbed by it because you've just spent so much time, you know, blasting people and everything else, uh, and you have adapted. Now, does that mean you're going to go out in the movie theater in Columbine or, you know, uh, blow up a whole bunch of people? No, it doesn't. It's not direct like that. However, uh, it is the case uh, that uh, uh, we psychologists have long shown that people exposed to violent movies are a little bit more uh, susceptible. I don't mean they're they are turn into murders, but they're less disturbed by it. I mean, for me, even the thought of doing something like that is disturbing. But if it becomes sort of commonplace and your novelty detector gets numb, it's really not going to be that disturbing. Something I I wish that I could remember who or where the study came from, but I remember in grad school we were we were talking about um, this topic, and I remember my the the professor. This was a, a media theory class, and he had said that there's no uh, link to video game violence and real life violence, but he said that those who already are predisposed to violence will be pushed in that direction, if that makes sense. 
Yeah, so he's kind of that's what I was going to say too. Yeah, and he's kind of talking about priming. Yeah, right, right. It's a a term that uh, uh, sometimes used in neuroscience, but at the same time in general psychology Mm -hmm. in a way. So let's say you're kind of an angry guy, uh, anyway, uh, and from your professor's point of view, it's sort of like he's the person's already predisposed. Doesn't mean they're going to do it. But it just adds to it, mm-hmm. uh, and it primes a little bit. Does that cause it? No, not necessarily. Uh, but uh, again, w- what we've been talking about throughout our conversation is incremental shades of gray here. It's not this causes that. Cyber uh, uh, space is bad. Cyberspace is good. <laughs> no, uh, we're far too complex for that. Yeah, uh, those kinds of one-on-one kind of. Uh, uh, factors but what if you're just an angry guy that's been bullied and we know a lot of these people that go in and shoot up places these kids with the the far too many guns out there accessible to them or even some of the people that have been um co-opt into uh you know what was once isis and all these other uh groups out there in in west asia and also the middle east and all that uh you know, they've been disenfranchised and they're already primed or predisposed, you could say, because of their social isolation and they find themselves the family or or if you look at gang violence, same kind of concept. Uh, you're I guess for me, the, the worst thing and what, what we seem to be going around, going around about with this saying is, at least in America, um, <clears throat> when you are talking about this kind of media which i gotta admit dude i love shutter i watch almost nothing but horror movies it's a streaming horror uh, service all, yeah it's a streaming platform for nothing but horror movies and i, I love it that's about all i watch really yeah me too um, i gotta say uh when we're talking about this lowest denominator uh the media picks up and doesn't hear you saying video games can make people more violent video games have that primer and they are possibly linked to it the the media hears video games cause people to be violent and then they blast that out and then people hear that people hear you know violent movies make serial killers you know i uh i i went i turned to be a serial killer because i watched cannibal holocaust you know something like that Exactly. And that's a reflection of the lowest common denominator of society because people don't use the prefrontal cortex as much to uh, develop some critical thinking capacities. So, no, there isn't a, you know, as, as Chance was saying, correlation doesn't equal a causation and all that. And sure. Yeah. And and the news media, for example, uh, you you described uh, just latch on to good, pithy uh, headline. Oh, psychologist says that violent video games cause uh, terror. Yeah, it's clickbait, <laughs> uh, so to speak. Yeah, well, in uh, along with what Ricky was saying, I think that what gets sort of dangerous or misconstrued is, like, I remember when Columbine happened, and you know, being so close to that in this area, that there was there was blame going around to every every facet except for maybe where blame should have been attributed so like marilyn manson he was he was you know 
to blame and then you know playing doom violent video games that was part part of that as well but like it, there wasn't really much um a, of a look into well where you know what was the parenting like what was going on at the schools like what what was the culture of the school were these kids being bullied were they mistreated like it's just it seems like if it there was a strong anti-bullying movement could we have stopped this right yeah you know so it seems like a lot of times that is kind of the easy out is just to say, Oh, you know, they played this video game or they listened to Marilyn Manson or whatever. Um, right. Yeah. So, and it takes critical thinking to put that all together. Uh, what you described here, a whole range of different factors, you know, what's the family environment, like the bullying at school, what they guys were looking at and all that. And that's not even uh, enough to explain why it happened or the accessibility to these massive uh, 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 killer guns that you could kill so many more people than you can with a knife. Uh, and But that's not enough to explain it either. Think We're so much more complex than these easy one-factor uh, uh, causal pattern uh, explanations. One of the last things I want to touch on, unless Ricky has something else, like I said, this, this is a pretty sensitive topic, especially nowadays and uh, certainly deals with a lot of political correctness, but in the chapter you uh, start talking about this acronym MUD, and I wonder, Ricky, are you familiar with that? It's a uh, it's a Dungeons and Dragons reference. Um, I'm trying oh, to remember it what it. Well, yeah, I'm not. Which one? Which one? one sorry, which one's that really into it? Yeah, it's. Uh, I'm trying to remember what it what it stands. Multi-user. Yeah, mul- um, multi-user dungeons. Oh, or okay. multi multi user domains is what you say. D- domains, yeah. Right. And I don't think it relates primarily to dungeon or so called D and D or Dungeons and Dragons, but it isn't uh, a lot of these video games right now. And you guys, well, Ricky would know more than us because he spends a lot of time doing. Aren't a lot of these games multi user games now anyway? Yeah, that's the way. That's the way games are going. Is they're all going yeah. towards that World of Warcraft kind of thing, you know, where it's a it's a not only multi-user but also multi-platform right like uh i play a lot of destiny 2 and that just became multi-platform i can play my copy of destiny 2 on uh my computer with my brother you know who lives a, a mile and a half away from me while he plays the same game on his playstation and and the two pieces of hardware talk to each other and we're playing the same game at the same time in different houses it's a it's it's really cool it's 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 a it's a lot yeah, it's, I, I have it is really amazing i you know and i think there's a really one uh, 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 a lot of fun that people can have i like you and both of my sons do the same thing with these other different games and they're about your age as well and and uh they have fun doing it they just don't spend their whole life doing it uh but it's a it's a uh it's entertainment and to some degree some of these games you actually uh, learn a few things uh, uh, uh some of them are history based and all that uh, uh but um uh, chance you were you were saying that the mud uh, acronym uh, you wanted you were going to ask a yeah so what i was it. leading into with that is so again i want to i want to preface that this is a sensitive topic and my intention is never to be confrontational, but just to to learn from each other about these sensitive topics. 
and this is a really relevant thing, especially nowadays with with gender issues and and pronouns and that sort of thing. But in the chapter, in reference to the multi-use, you say gender swapping is a significant phenomenon in the MUDs. Though men outnumber women by some estimates as much as four to one, the ratio of participants playing roles of women in the MUDs are perhaps two to one. In other words, there's a significant number of, quote, virtual transvestites. You go on to say some... I gotta jump in on this. Yeah, let me let me finish real quick. I play with about sixty or so different people on Destiny with my clan, and a significant portion of the men in that game play female avatars. So let me, yeah, let me, uh, let me. Yeah, it, it's it's really interesting. So let me uh, let me wrap up this. It's like two paragraphs, real quick. And say that some suggest that there are, there is an all too prevalent quote-unquote fake lesbian syndrome played out in the muds men impersonate women to have sex with other women online many of these sex scenes can also be between two men having sex with one another while pretending to be women given that sexual identity is a critical development developmental challenge of adolescence and that a significant number of mud participants are in their late teens and early 20s mudding can lead to a gender confusion Gender confusion can delay the next development challenge, learning to have an intimate relationship with a lover. So like I said, this has been a really hot topic the last couple of years as far as gender. There's a term gender dysphoria. You say gender confusion. So how have you seen this play out in recent years with the prevalence of multiple gender pronouns, non-binary, trans, people being more open? Is this a symptom of personality fragmentation as you cited in 2003? Or are we simply living in a time where trans people can be more comfortable to be open about who they are? Yeah, that's a really uh, timely uh, question. And uh, I think the latter point that you just uh, raised is is certainly uh, the case in that uh, trans people are uh, increasingly accepted uh, and becoming a part of uh, the accepted society uh, of course, your political persuasion might uh, uh, make that more difficult. Uh, but and and I got to say that I spent uh, about two thirds of my life in the San Francisco Bay Area, so you know that uh, uh, it's a far more open society mm-hmm. there. And and for my postdocs, I used to be the director of the directors of training in these twenty-four medical centers in Northern California, and I'd always get the postdocs and the interns together for. Um, uh, seminars on a regular basis. And and one of the seminars that I would, I think I had three or four years was on, on uh, not only trans, but also the, uh, the, um, the transition, uh, you know, uh, surgically and everything. And so I, I think I probably, if I were to write that section uh, it, that you're quoting there, uh, uh, it, it, from 2003, if I were to write it now in 2021, I would use different language, of course, because um, uh, we're far more, um, um, let's say uh, we have a better understanding of, of uh, a lot of these gender-related issues. Mm-hmm. However, um, uh, I also think there's way too much political correctness all over the place and every week and i know some people get angry at me every week there's a new letter to be added you know lgbtqrstb i mean really is it that simple that we're 
we can be classified just by one letter. I think people are more complex than that. Uh, uh, but <laughs> uh, uh, I, I do believe that I would uh, change the language uh, and um, how that relates to these MUDs. Uh, I'm not really sure because I'm not really up on that anymore. Uh, yeah, I think the the reason that you use that that as an as an example is because online it's it's it was it's really easy to shape your identity or your avatar any way you want, and it it kind of seemed like you were you were saying that that can lead to gender confusion, which is 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 a problem with development. Yeah, and so uh, uh, I think that in many ways. Um, uh, the sort of the gen the reason I'm I was sort of qualifying or saying I would write it in a different way. Mm -hmm. uh, the gender confusion is something we all go through uh, anyway. I mean, to differing degrees, of course. Uh, but uh, you know, through adolescence and so on, now that uh, um, uh, we're more accepting of uh, people's um, um, sexuality and so on in, in the general uh, culture i'm not talking about the meltdown culture uh, uh we uh, we have to i think understand that part of uh development is to kind of wonder about your own sexuality and so on let me use myself as an example i spent much of my uh 20s uh and then later 40s and 50s and, and part of my 60s in the San Francisco Bay Area. So boy, I tell you, especially in the late 70s when people were really coming out all the time and in, and I lived in San Francisco at the time and I was a, a what they called straight back then, but I guess you'd call it heterosexual now. Uh, uh, people were hitting on me all the time. I think straight still applies. What's that? He just Family said straight is still a good moniker. Yeah. Oh, OK. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I was comfortable with my own sexuality, but it was always being tested. And that, that made me reflect on, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. Am I, am I open to that? Well, I'm not that interested uh, in having a, a, a bisexual experience. It didn't mean that I was against bisexual people. I had, had a lot of lesbian and gay friends and bisexual friends, but they weren't uh, central friends, so to speak. But that uh, you could say it wasn't gender confusion. The, the confusion sounds like I was, might've been confused. I wasn't confused. I was just, you know, some guy just developing a young adult, but I was fine with being straight. Uh, and I've always been fine being straight, but I also have had plenty of uh, gay, lesbian, bisexual, trans. I, I don't really have any, well, I had a boss that was, uh, and so, uh, uh you know, it's it's less confusion, more about uh, exploration and identity and how you feel comfortable in the world with other people, I think. Okay. As, as more exploration and more awareness uh, and, and, and more different types of pronouns and identities come to the fore, uh, would you say that an exploration of all of these would be a normal thing. Uh, I guess what I'm trying to say is the more availability and the more that it's talked about the different different types of identities and different uh, gender fluidities, that kind of thing, the more exploration and the longer that this stage of development is going to be taking for a person who's going through it right now. Uh, would, you, would you agree with that statement? Well, I, I think that uh... 
Uh, identity is not a static uh, kind of uh, process, you know, like uh, you're Ricky, your chance, your chance, I'm John, uh, there's John, you know, I, I have a general continuity of me being me, you being you, you being you. Uh, uh, and there's a, it, there's an evolution to it. And I'm generally <laughs> still myself, so to speak. Uh, and, uh, so that process of, of exploration, uh, I think is just part of human development throughout our whole lifespan. Now, uh, all these chunks, uh, uh, described by a letter, <laughs> uh, seem to be, it seems a little, uh, overly defined, um, um, so that might be a rather confusing answer, but uh, I think it's just, we're always uh, developing. Now, are you going to be flipping around with different sexual preferences and all that? Well, some people do, but most people don't. And it doesn't mean that some people that do are bad and the people that don't are, are good or vice versa. Um, do you follow what I mean? So I, I think there's, in general, more acceptance of some some flexibility in terms of who we are uh, in general uh, for the general public. And, and some of us are a little bit more comfortable with uh, our sexuality than others. Uh, more people are. Yeah. I guess, I guess the question comes from, uh, I'm a father and I've got a few kids. Some of them are mine. One of them is not, but with my kids having friends and things that I've noticed just observing them is that, Pronouns and and uh, sexualities can be fluid. Uh, you can you know uh, know a kid who wants to go by she, and then within what seems like a week and a half to me, but it's probably actually like seven or eight months, they decide no, I'd rather be a he they or I'd rather be a, uh, a they them or or a he she you know what whatever. Uh, and I guess what I'm trying to say is I feel like that's kind of a normal part of figuring out who you were. I remember when I was a kid, man, there were some good looking guys in my school. And I always, you know, I never really wanted to, to be with them, but I always found myself kind of attracted to them, you know. Uh, same thing with women. I've always been attracted to women. Uh, and I guess I'm now what you would term uh, a, a pansexual, um, but it's um, it's one of those things that that I feel like you're kind of always discovering about yourself, right? Yeah, yeah. I think you described it well. That you know uh, we're less in these little cans <laughs> you've got to be this or you got to be that oh, oh. Uh, that's why i was sort of uh saying i would describe what i wrote back uh before this the whole idea of gender confusion i didn't like the i don't like the word confusion as much um and more sort of exploration but it doesn't have to be vigorous exploration because uh, Ricky, you were just describing, you know, this week and that week, uh, you can change and all that kind of stuff. But there's a little bit more um, flipping around a little bit early in development than later, <laughs> so to speak. Uh, and uh, in general, not in the meltdown portion of our culture, but um, 
the people that are homophobic and, and all that. that. That's the meltdown uh, portion that I kind of regard. But the, those of us that are talking now, I think that we, we have a, a better, ex a, how can I say, a more accepting attitude about diversity and, and people's, uh, we don't all have to share the exact same interests and, and uh, um, cravings and everything else. How boring in the, of a world it would be if we did. Yeah, yeah my kind of philosophy with my kids is I don't really care what you are as long as what you are isn't an asshole. Yeah, exactly. Well, well put, well put. Very that should be a bumper sticker. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, I don't care. I don't care what you are. Don't be an asshole. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I always add in. I mean, just try to be a a, a a generous, giving person. And if we could all be like that, boy, we could really help uh, us all survive this uh, pretty uh, difficult next few decades with climate change and many more pandemics to come. Well, I, again, I really appreciate your time, Dr. Arden, and uh, I always enjoy talking to you and, and going over these chapters, so I'm looking oh, forward I, to... Oh, I enjoy talking to you, too. Thank and, you. And uh, it was a great pleasure to talk with both of you today, and, and uh, keep doing what you're doing. I think it, you're providing a good service for, for people to, to, you know, explore different ideas and take a look at what who we are sure and as a society and all that so i i applaud what you're doing all right well thank you very much and looking forward to talking again okay you take right. care bye bye bye, -bye. Dr. John.